what we're reading here in Hebrews 11 together um, takes me back to some things that I was learning as a college student. Um, let me, I'll just put a little pause there. I noticed over time here, over the last year, year and a half, as different members of our pastoral team have come and spoken um, in Amen, there seems to be a need for uh, each guy to sort of establish their college football identity, you know, and uh, I've, I've hesitated to do that all around because um, of the fortunes of my alma mater, um, but I'll have to reveal it today, and, and it's got something to do with what we're studying, actually. Uh, when I was in college uh, at the University of Southern California, all right, so um, that carries with it all kinds of interesting connotations, I'm sure. Most recently, crime, cheating, NCAA sanctions. It's just a sordid past here recently. And so we have at USC a, a kind of a, a motto that says, proud to be a Trojan. And unfortunately, I'm no longer proud to be a Trojan um, after the last few years. Um, we were sitting at a table, uh, just some of the pastors, a while back, and this was going on, and Dick Kane was holding forth about Alabama and all this stuff, and guys were really engaged in their college football uh, SEC conversation, and I was just sitting there, and somebody turned to me and said, so what, where'd you go to school? You know, and I sort of apologetically mentioned, well, USC, the one out west, and, uh, you know, one of the guys, one of the younger interns sat there. He was sitting right next to me, and he sat there with this thoughtful look on his face, and he kind of said, I, I kid you not, he turned to me and he said, USC, they used to be good, didn't they? And I was like, I said, that's it. That, that is a pronouncement. I am officially irrelevant. Nothing I have to say has any currency here. So I've just tried to keep it quiet until right now, okay? But here's the, here's the story. I, at USC, there's, as at every university, probably a, a large athletic building. And uh, every time you come into that building, which I had to do just virtually every day a couple of times a day, um, you walk through a series of monuments, basically. They were standing uh, displays in the lobby there of our of Heritage Hall, and uh, in it, what you're walking around and through are various um, Heisman Trophy cases, okay? And so, you know, guys from the, from the glorious past of the USC Trojans um, have their Heisman Trophies on display there, and um, one of the things that was going on in my life at the time was that the church that I was beginning to attend um, was beginning, the, the senior pastor was teaching through Hebrews. And when he got to Hebrews 11, and he kind of talked about this as, you know, the, the hall of fame of faith, if you will, uh, I was thinking about Heritage Hall and how every time I walked through there, there were these monuments to, you know, football greatness and stuff. And I started to identify um, Hebrews 11 with the idea of these men, these people, that are mentioned throughout the chapter being great heroes of the faith. Now, I am so grateful that in the last couple of weeks, as we've looked at chapter 11, George has been so careful to uh, help us remember and understand that this is not a monument to these people that are named. Um, these people are actually trophies of God's grace. And it's not because they themselves had anything particularly great going, even though the names are great. Um, and I, I, it's just helped me to be able to re, uh, reorient myself in the way I think about the people that are mentioned here, because more are mentioned in our section today as we look at it, that what we're looking at and what we're thinking about are people who are trophies of God's grace. And... Uh, how in almost every case the people mentioned in chapter 11 uh, have actually messed up badly. They have, uh, they're sinners, 
there's nothing about them inherently that would cause us to, uh, you know, hold them high other than the grace of God working in their life to cause them to walk obediently with him. So, with those things in mind, let's just uh, read the text for this morning. We're in chapter 11 of Hebrews. We're going to look at verse 32 and following. And you follow along as I read. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to see what you've been doing in history, how your character is so consistent and so sovereign, and uh, how that relates to our lives today, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. Okay. Well, on your outline this morning, you'll notice that the whole thing is on one page, on, front, on the front page, all right? So if you're looking for other pages of notes today, you're going to have to think small, all right? And that's just an expression of my own, you know, little need to look at a page and see it all there. So, again, please forgive the format today. Maybe you can write somewhat small as you follow along today. We're going to just, again, begin with verse 32 and following there. What we've seen here in chapter 11, then, are ten people that uh, have been mentioned in the text who are representative examples of the entire span of Israel's history. And uh, again, these are not superheroes. These are not, you know, the kind of people that we're going to go see in, in the movies here in the next few weeks. They're not those kinds of people. They were regular people. They were sinners. And uh, they had significant flaws. But again, the message is exactly that, how God worked through the lives of people who are as flawed and as messed up as every one of us. So the first section we're going to look at has uh, got to do with faith and deliverance, verses 32 through 35. And uh, he begins with this phrase, what more shall I say? <laughs> I love that about, about Scripture. It's so honest. The writer has gone through ten names, and he says, I could be here all day. You know, we could go on and on here. What, what more shall I say? And then he goes on to just mention the names of six more individuals in Israel's history. He doesn't give any kind of exposition of them, so we won't take a lot of time to do that. But he mentions them, and they're significant. So let's just kind of click through those names. He says, what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell you, that is, to tell the stories of each of these people, of Gideon, Barak, familiar name, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. Gideon. And I've listed for you there the uh, passages next to their names. This is worth reading. This is worth going back to. This, is, uh, this period in which these people lived was remarkable. And if you haven't looked at the lives of these men, um, look up the, uh, the references and go back and, and just take a few minutes and review their lives. You'll be amazed at what you see. Uh, Gideon was the guy who everybody knows as the one who laid out the fleece for God to confirm his direction in his life. Gideon was the one who uh, 
in fighting the Midianites, started out with 30,000 men. God says, way too many. You don't need, need 30,000. He gets it down to 300. And then he um, used that technique of surrounding the hillsides around the Midianites at night with torches and with pots over them and trumpets. And when they broke the pots and brought out the torches and blew the trumpets, the Midianites fled in discomfiture and um, they chased them down and, and wiped them out. So Gideon was a big hero in the book of Ju uh, Judges. Barak as well. You may not have known our former president's name was an Old Testament Hebrew name. There it is. Barak um, joined along with another personage in the Old Testament who is very important, a prophetess called Deborah. And um, most of the references to, um, I beg your pardon, I'm thinking about Jephthah. Barak, yes, joined um, with the uh, prophetess Deborah to do most of what he did in defeating the enemies that God had given him to deal with. And it's not a small footnote that Deborah was included in that story. The fact that even in, in the Old Testament, God was using godly women to bring about his purposes in the nation of Israel. Okay, just a mention. Samson. Uh, everybody knows the story of Samson to some extent. Uh, Samson's an interesting guy. He was a man who God had given a particular calling and this supernatural gift of strength, although the fact is that he was probably, again, not like one of the Avengers, all bucked up and, you know, superhero type strong guy. He, he, was pro he probably looked pretty much like everybody else. It was just that God had given him supernatural strength. And uh, so it must have been an interesting thing for him to be playing around on the playground as a kid and, you know, kicking balls or whatever they kicked around at that time and, and uh, see the implications of that kind of thing in his life. But uh, poor Samson... Um, despite his giftedness and his calling, was a, a big, immature baby as a man. Um, he wanted his way all the time, and people catered to him because apparently of the threat of his strength, including his parents. They gave him everything he wanted. And what ended up uh, being the case in the, in the life of poor Samson was that he became kind of a sexual addict, um, he was constantly chasing women, which was, in the end, his downfall with Delilah. But even in the end of his life, God had used him, as he had throughout, to defeat the Philistines. And you remember the story of how, at the end, as a blinded, pitiful figure of what he used to be, he uh, asked God for one more um, anointing of that strength and power. And he literally leaned on the foundation pillars of a large structure and brought it down on all the Philistine leaders. And even in the end of his life, uh, God was using him. Samson. Jephthah. Um, Jephthah is a, a figure that most people haven't heard too much about. Maybe some of these other judges as well. Um, but Jephthah was a guy who started out with a, a, a tough uh, approach to life. Jephthah was the bastard son of a prostitute. And immediately in his early life, he was completely rejected and sort of exiled from his family because he was an embarrassment. And as he grew, you know, he's kind of like the boy named Sue. He had to get tough or die. And um, so he began by surrounding himself with other misfits, kind of put together um, a mercenary force, which God chose to use to defeat his enemies. And Jephthah um, became a brilliant warrior. He's also known for having made an absolutely horrendous vow. And I won't even talk about that. You, you read the section there that's um, provided for you about Jephthah. It's crazy. And it's something that biblical scholars have disputed over the years. So there's a little titillation for you. David, everybody knows, God's covenant king. And the significant thing about David especially was that it was through David that God's covenant promises of a messianic king 
came. And so David, in his ups and downs and falls and stumbles, um, still represents the best of God's grace in the life of a sinner who would be um, the, the forebearer of Christ himself as the messianic, eternal messianic king. And then Samuel as well. Samuel was a very important figure in the Old Testament um, and in Old Testament history. He was actually a bridge between several of these eras, the era of the judges. Where, and it, remember, Israel had no king. They had territory. They lived somewhat tribally, but they had no king. And so when they agitated for a king like all the other nations, it was Samuel that God called on to bridge the period of the judges. He became um, not only a judge in Israel, he became a prophet. He was the one who actually anointed Saul first and then David as the first kings of Israel. And um, so he served both as a judge, a prophet, and a priest. Very important man in, in Old Testament history. So just little tidbits and notes about these significant lives of people who were flawed, significantly flawed, that God used because of his grace at work in their lives to achieve his good purposes in, in the history of Israel. Now, um, he goes on, having mentioned those names, to just mention very broadly in the history of Israel, kind of a summary of some selected events in Old Testament history when God had delivered his people. So if you look there at verse 33, having mentioned the people, now he mentions some incidents. And he says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained, or some of your Bibles may received promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Now we're going to come back to that one in just a minute. Quenched the power of fire. Maybe as we read through these, it just, it, it just touches something in your memory about some of these events. Escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead in resurrection. That's, that's an interesting addition here, how on a number of occasions um, in the Old Testament, we see the prophets having, uh, by God's power, actually resurrected, uh, in most cases, children from the dead. So just a series of selected events here um, from Old Testament history as a, as a summary of what it was that God has done in history, at, and certainly up to the point of uh, the original writer writing here in the early first Christian century. What happens now is that there is a, a significant change of tone and of direction in the text. Because in, in the, really in the middle of verse 35, if you see it, it says, women receive back their dead, and then things start turning a little dark. Some were tortured. And from there on, from verse 35b, the end of verse 35 onward, through the next three or four verses, we see another thing happening. And there in your notes, I've called that faith in suffering. Okay, so we've seen in that first early section, faith and deliverance, how God used the people and he used their place in history to deliver his own people. But there's another side to the story. And we should be thankful that Scripture is so honest in acknowledging the fact that, you know, following Christ, being a person of Yahweh, is not always easy. And it doesn't always end up real nice and neat. And these next verses are there to remind us of the fact that, yes, God uses people for deliverance. There are others who have a different role in his sovereign purpose in history. And we're going to see those um, under the heading there, faith and suffering. Okay? Um, let's just read there, verse 35 and following again. It says, 
Okay, some were tortured, refusing to accept reliefs so that they might rise again to a better life. Let's just stop right there for a second. Um, in this sudden kind of jarring transition, the contrast to the section that preceded it, um, he's going to use some descriptions here that are very um, intentional. The, and again, we, we need to love that about the scriptures, that the very words of God that he has inspired here are significant. They're important. So it's not just a big mass of words. The very particular words that God uses to describe uh, anything, but in this case, the struggle of his people, are important. And so we're going to touch on them. Um, it says there in verse 35, some were tortured. Um, unfortunately, not an uncommon experience of the people of God in history. The word tortured there um, comes from a word that we use commonly in our day. And the word is, it, it, you, do you know what a timpani is? A timpani, one of those big drums, you know, in the orchestra. And uh, it was originally made of some kind of skin, I guess, stretched over a drum, and they beat on it. That's the word here, okay? They were not, not just tortured. They were beaten. They were tim human timpanies. They were literally beaten like drums, okay? Um, refusing, it says, to accept release. The kind of release that is being spoken of here is the word release is the same word that very commonly in the New Testament Paul uses to describe redemption, deliverance, okay, salvation. And these people were beaten like drums and refused to accept redemption, deliverance, freedom from their captors. You know, and that, my mind went immediately to the experience of Senator John McCain, for instance, many others as well. But Senator McCain, as you may know, was a naval aviator during the Vietnam War. His fighter was shot down, landed in a lake in the middle of Hanoi. They fished him out, beat him to a pulp, mistreated him, continued to do so for the next six or seven years, I believe. Uh, somewhere in the process, they discovered who he actually was as the son of a prominent American admiral. And somebody in North Vietnam got the idea that, hey, we can use this. So they went to McCain and they said, listen, you get to go free on the, uh, on the, on the goodness of the people of North Vietnam. And he said, not going. I'm not leaving. I don't want it. And they said, you don't understand. We're going to let you go. And what we're going to say is, we're doing this as an act of peace because we're a peaceful people. And McCain said, well, what he said is not something that I can say here. But he refused to accept redemption, freedom, because there was a greater purpose involved. And that's what was going on in the lives of God's people at this point. And the reason for it is a, is a wonderful thing if you look at it there. They refused to receive freedom, release, that they might rise again to a better life. <laughs> the idea was they knew they were going to die. But they were actually choosing mortal life for the true freedom of the resurrection that they would receive in the eternal life that they had. So just that verse alone is so profound. And it goes from there. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging. Um, mocking, just sarcasm. It's the same term that was used of Jesus when he went through all those mock trials that he had to go through during uh, the night before his death. Sarcasm, you know. Remember the soldiers said, oh, they, look, the king of the Jews pulled out a club and beat him on the head a couple of times. 
and, uh, you know, just that kind of stuff. Well, that was common experience for God's people. Cruel sarcasm, chains, imprisonment. And as these things are mentioned, we can actually see um, the contours, the shadows of the experience of some of God's own prophets. Like what's listed there in verse 36 sounds a lot like what happened in the life of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, what a guy. He's become one of my favorite biblical figures because um, he, they could have written this chapter about Jeremiah, in fact, that uh, he was called by God early in life and God said, I want you to do this. I want you to go tell the people to repent and that's all you're going to do. Just keep up the, the work. And so he continued that work for some 30 or 40 years throughout the history of Israel. And God said, here's the problem. They're never going to listen. You got a job, you got a calling, go do it. Just know they're not listening. They're not going to do it. And so he suffered a life of, of real abuse at the hands of his own people for telling them God's truth about who they were and the fact that they needed to repent and be saved. So you can see the, through the, these descriptions the actual contours of, of the lives of some of God's people as they uh, live them in the Old Testament. Verse 37, they were stoned. Stoning being a common um, Jewish form of capital punishment. And you see that elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, as well as in the Old Testament law. When many times when people uh, violated the law of God, the penalty had to do with stoning. Well, God's people were stoned through the ages. They were sawn in two. Okay, this is getting worse as we go. Um, Talmudic literature, extra-biblical Jewish literature, as well as other extra-biblical writings, uh, tell us that the prophet Isaiah was probably, in the end, a victim of having been cut in two. That was his means of death. With a wooden saw. Nasty. Um, And the word here, our, our Bibles generally read sawn in Two, three words. The actual Greek word is son into, I-N-T-O. So God's people were son into, okay, with nasty in, uh, implements. Um, they went around in sheepskins, goatskins, which, by the way, characterized some of the Hebrew prophets again. They, they went around like that. Exiles from society, wandering through the hills in the, the skins of animals. Um, afflicted, that's an interesting word. When the, Bible use, when the New Testament uses this word afflicted, it's the same word as is used in um, Philippians that talks about how they would make wine. They would take grapes and squeeze them, you know, to get the juice out, and um, the picture here is God's people were squeezed. The juice was squeezed out of them. They were afflicted. They were pressured in that way. Very picturesque, and I hope you see why God gives us these words. And then he gives us, the writer to Hebrews here gives us uh, just a, a brief editorial comment in verse 38. All this, and he stops, and he says, of whom the world was not worthy. He just can't go on without saying, the world exiled these people from polite society. They cut them up, they killed them, they exiled them out into the hills. And he says, no, the world wasn't worthy of them. Right? And then he says, they, they ended their lives wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens 
and caves or literally holes in the ground. That was their lives. So, I mean, do you see the, the contrast here? The first section to the second section. Faith and deliverance, and now faith in the midst of suffering. There's something here that, that um, I really want you to see. If you would turn back with me to one of the references. One of the references there had to do with quench the power of fire, okay? Let's turn in our Bibles back to Daniel, okay? So on your device or in your Bible, back to Daniel in the Old Testament, um, chapter 3. So I'll give you a second to get there. By the way, let me just mention while you're turning that what we're, what we're reading is still the experience of God's people in the world right this very minute. God is in the process of, of delivering people who have cried out to him in faith and doing his purposes in their lives and in their context of life. There are others who are crying out to God who are in difficult circumstances who are learning what it means to live faith and suffering. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a second. But here in Daniel 3, we have a great illustration of this business of faith and suffering, even as it's mentioned obliquely there in that one reference. Let me just give you an idea of what's going on in Daniel 3. Um, It comes in the flow of the fact that uh, at that time in history, right around 600 B.C.-ish, Um, the Babylonians had come over after threatening Israel. They said, we're coming. We're going to come to get you. And, of course, Israel wasn't listening. But uh, one of the first things they did was to come over to Israel and sweep the cream of the crop of Israelite young scholars right out of society. They took them. They uh, exiled them to Babylon, and that's the group that included Daniel, Mishael, Azariah. They, were, they ended up being known as what? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their story here. So they were taken to Babylon to be educated in the language and the literature of the Chaldeans, the Bible says. They were going to be thoroughly indoctrinated, thoroughly enculturated as Babylonians, and the idea was Once we get them acting like good Babylonians, we'll send them back to Israel to be our our vassals there. And uh, they didn't didn't bargain for what they got in the likes of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In chapter 3 here in Daniel, an interesting thing was happening. King Nebuchadnezzar, the the most powerful king on earth at the time, uh, cooks up in his mind the fact that he's so great that he's going to build himself a giant statue of himself and place it out on the plains of Dura there in Babylon. Big open area. And so the story is how he called together all of all the political and religious kind of sycophants, you know, the, all the toe kissers in the, in the kingdom. They said, okay, here's the deal. I've just built this big uh, statue of myself and we're going to have a celebration. So I'm going to call everybody out here on this plane. And when the music starts, everybody goes down on your faces and worships my beautiful statue. Got it? Everybody got it? Okay. The big day came. And, you know, Nebuchadnezzar must have just been dancing with, uh, with anticipation. Here it comes. Big moment. So on comes the music. Boom. Everybody goes down. After the event... Some people go back to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, hey, king, don't know if you know it about it, know about this or not, but your three boys over there, you know, your little favorites that you brought over from Israel, and as always happens, they're referred to as, pejoratively, the Jews. You know, hey, king, the Jews that you brought over, your favorite boys, didn't bow down. Everybody else went down. They just stood there. Don't know if you knew about that. You might want to think about it. The king went nuts. He just, he lost it. 
he called the three in and he says, okay, boys, listen, once again, we're going to start the music. At the sound of the music, everybody goes down. And if you don't, I got a furnace over here that's real hot, and we're going to toss you in. Okay? Fine. Here we go. And at that point, the story engages. Um, I love this, this scenario here. All right, look at verse 16 in um, Daniel 3. Here's how they responded to the most powerful king on earth. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, (laughs) we we have no need to answer you in this matter. We're not going to come out with our great diplomatic talk here and, you know, do what politicians always do. A lot of talk, no content. We're not, we're not going to blow a lot of smoke at you, O king. We're not going to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Now that goes back to a question that, a rhetorical question, that Nebuchadnezzar had asked up in verse 15. He tells them everything that's going to happen. Then he says, okay, you three, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You're you're real religious. Let's see your God or whoever's God deliver you out of my hands. And they said, hey, we're not going to answer you with some big diplomatic deal. Our God is able. There's no question about his ability to deliver. Our God is able. And they go on. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. One way or another, we're going to get delivered out of your hand. Either God's going to do it, or we're going to turn into crispy critters here. But in either case, we're going to be out of your hand, king. Our God is able. But, and then look at verse 18. But if not, if it's not his purpose to deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. Wow, fantastic. Their point is, look, what God, the level of conflict here is not political. It's not even racial, the Jews. It's spiritual. So the king says, what God is able to deliver you from my hand? They said, our God is able. And he will deliver us one way or the other. That really ticks the king off, okay? And so at this point, he, he just loses it. And he says, that's it. Pick him up. Throw him in the fire. And by the way, while you're doing that, stoke that sucker up seven times. Get it really hot. And so they did. And the guys who were carrying Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego to toss them in got incinerated themselves. Just getting, getting near this thing. It was hot. And so down they go, all dressed up for the big event and everything. And what happens is remarkable. Um, Verse 24, and I don't know what the deal was. Somehow the king was so messed up, he, he must have built the furnace with some kind of a viewing area or something. Because it says in verse 24, 26, beg your pardon, Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. Come out here. Now, what had gone on previously is this. The three go into the fire, and the king's looking in whatever that window was, and he says, (laughs) back in verse 24, didn't we throw three guys in there? I mean, I saw three guys go in. He's looking into the window, and he says, the king says, But I see four men, unbound, walking around in the midst of the fire, and they aren't hurt. What is going on here? We threw the three guys in, and they're in there walking around having a little party or something. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I thought we threw three in there. They're walking around. I see four. And the fourth one looks like the son of the gods. Um, 
Interesting that a pagan king would make that kind of observation, isn't it? The, our, our God is able, and he will deliver us. And so the king says, y'all get out of there. Come on out. Come out of there. Let's see what we got here. And the scripture here says, goes on to say um, that they came out. They didn't smell like smoke. <laughs> they were still wearing their clothes. They didn't even smell like smoke. And the king said, oh, my goodness. Well, I don't know what happened here, but blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Trust, faith. Here's what I want you to get from that, okay, guys? And in, in the pattern of our Hebrews 11 study, here's what we see. There are two kinds of situations, two kinds of experiences in the experience of God's people. One, that the God who is able to deliver, delivers. That's the whole first section of our passage, 32 through 35. He delivered those people. He's able, and he did. Second kind of situation in history. The God who is able to deliver, doesn't deliver. That's the second part of our passage today. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, it still doesn't change the character of the God who is able to deliver. Okay? That is, that is in a nutshell, the, the deep truth that the people who were delivered and the people who died suffering, trusting in God, held on to. Our God, who we serve, is able to deliver, and he will deliver us, one way or another. And as deep as that is able to sink into our souls, we're going to begin to experience something of the faith of the lives of these godly men and women who went before us. God was not only able to deliver and this is so significant why I wanted you to see Daniel 3. God was not only able to deliver, he was present. The son of the gods was most likely the son of God, all right. And so not only was he able to deliver, he was present with his people. God is always present in the suffering of his people. It would be easy at any given point to say, where's God? Here we are, we're getting beat like a drum, sawn in half, all this hard stuff. Where's God? We have no record of that. God is always present within the suffering of his people. He doesn't, he's not obligated to provide answers, but he's always present. Uh, this week, I took the opportunity to dip back into a book that uh, I've listed for you on the back of the outline on the, on the question thing, called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, I, I hardly ever read from this because it's so hellacious. I mean, it's just horrifying. John Fox was a, uh, an English Protestant who lived at the very time when Martin Luther produced the 95 Theses. And Fox put together a history of Christian um, martyrs, starting at the time of Nero, right up until the time of the Reformation when he lived. And then the editors of the book added further history as well. And when you read this, um, it's humbling, it's upsetting, it's, it, it is so heavy that I can only read it a little bit at a time ever. But it, this passage made me think of it and go back to it. Um, it is the experience of people in our world today. The EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, the denomination in which Second Presbyterian um, stands, um, has a missionary over in Turkey. He'd been serving there for some 30 years, 30 years, I think. Humbly, faithfully, quietly. Uh, at the time of the recent coup attempt in Turkey, he was specifically targeted and arrested by... Um, by the uh, authorities of the country, and accused 
of being part of the conspiracy. You know, this is a pastor who spent his whole life loving the Turkish people. He's been in jail for a year and a half, and he's coming up for trial, for hearing, uh, with a Turkish judge on the 16th, a couple of days from now. And the EPC has asked us to put out a notice for concerted prayer for Andrew Brunson um, there in Turkey because he could receive an immediate life sentence. He could receive 35 years. Who knows? But he's at the mercy of a judge there in Turkey. I'm saying this stuff is going on as we speak, okay? The God who's able to deliver delivers. The God who is able to deliver does not deliver by his own providential purpose. It doesn't change the sovereign goodness of the God who is able to deliver. So we live by faith. We die by faith. Whether in death um, or life, God is with us. He's always with his people, especially in suffering. Let's finish the passage. It, it completes uh, itself with just, and back to Hebrews 11, I'm sorry. Verses 39 and 40 tie together, pull together everything that has gone before. And all these, all these dear old covenant saints, though commended through their faith, didn't receive what was promised. And that's not new news. And it's not saying... Hey, they lived their lives. They thought they were going to get a payoff, and they didn't get it. That's not the point here. If you go back in the same chapter to verse 13, the writer has says this, said this earlier. He said, all these died in faith, not having received the things promised. In other words, not having seen them fully completed in their, their largest sense. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I have that verse so marked up you can hardly read the words. That's us, dear brothers. Uh, we, we're living in, in what sometimes uh, we call the already and not yet uh, of the Christian life. There are things that have happened already. There are things that have happened not yet. And that is exactly what he's describing in these last couple of verses. The not yet for these Old Testament saints was the complete fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Covenant in Christ. Passage says they didn't live to see that, although they had true union with God, they had true redemption from their sins. They had it already by faith in what God would do. It just wasn't yet. The New Covenant saints, all of us who came after the cross and the resurrection, are on the already side. We look back to what Jesus has done. The Old Covenant saints look forward to what hadn't happened yet. The faith is the same. And we're united together in that common faith, is what this section is saying. Um, they did not receive what was promised fulfilled in their lifetime, these dear people. And I've listed for you there some of the promises that the new covenant fulfilled that they didn't completely experience. That, in verse 40, um, to the end that, God had provided something better for us. Now, let's get that straight. He's not saying, you lucky people who lived after Jesus get the real deal. No. Our Old Testament brothers and sisters had every bit of what we receive in the benefits of the redemption of Christ. It's just that on our side of history, we know his name. We know the details. These dear people didn't know the name of Jesus or the story of Calvary specifically. We do. And we look back in grace and in gratitude at some of the things that our Old Testament brothers and sisters didn't even know. There's a sense in which they had to have more faith than we do because they had no idea what this thing was going to look like as God brought it to a completion. But they've been made perfect with us in Christ. The word perfect there at the end of verse 40 
Anybody, any, any of y'all feel perfect yet? There's a, there's a not yet right there. I'm not feeling so perfect at the moment. But it says that apart from us, they shouldn't be made perfect. In other words, all together, we're going to be made perfect. Just click down, and I'm going to steal George's thunder from next week, but click down into chapter 12, verse 2. Look what it says. Looking to Jesus, the founder and, what's the next word? Perfecter of our faith. It's the same word as the word at the end of verse 40. Okay? We're looking forward to being made made perfect with our Old Testament brothers. Chapter 12, verse 2 says, yeah, and Jesus is going to do it because he's the perfecter of our faith. It's beautiful. So he puts his big um, inspired arms around the entire Old Covenant and New Covenant and the experience of God's people, and he says, we're all coming to the cross together and being perfected by the perfecter of our faith. And what a profound experience it must have been for first-generation Christians as Jews to almost straddle these two covenants, you know, to see it completely fulfilled in Christ and to come to faith in him as this generation would have. It's amazing stuff. And I just, I put at the bottom of your note outline there just a a beautiful summary by John Calvin. And we'll just finish by reading that. He says, God wished to bring us all together in one body and to put off its complete perfection to our time, that is, to the advent of Christ. What more could any of us desire than that we should have a share in all the benefits which God bestowed on them, on Abraham and Moses and David and the patriarchs and prophets and good kings, so as to be united with them in the body of Christ. What more could we ask? Amen.